This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Premier Kathleen Wynne had a town hall last night and got an earful from Ontarians on topics ranging from hydro, the college strike, and a whole lot more. What's the upside to doing these sorts of things? Is there actually a political win for win in this? Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hey, Henry, how are you doing today? Not too bad, Bill. Good. Uh, I, I guess any time any politician lays themselves out to the public like this and says, go ahead, ask me anything, they're going to get an earful. But uh, were you surprised, given some of the, the rhetoric that's going on in Ontario these days, that she'd actually do this sort of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think she's uh, she's brave. Uh, I mean, she's optimistic. I think a lot of politicians would have looked at the polling numbers over the last year and saying, I'm out of here. Uh, so she's she knows she's going into, into a headwind. And uh, she thinks she's strong, tough, and smarter, and she's going to be able to, you know, get through it all. But uh, she knows she's going to have rough, rough going. Is there a political upside to to this 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 mandate, this this sort of thing to do to actually get out there and just kind of take it and wing it from the, from the public? Well, I think I think it's always a good policy to address the major criticisms that you're you're having. And I mean, the government has done that. I mean, uh, has tried to do it in certain areas. Uh, we take take the electricity bills, the hydro bills, uh, for example. Uh, I think I'm probably not too unusual. I've, I I check them. I know I keep a record, a running record on these. And I think uh, you know over the course of summer, my monthly bills were about one, almost one third of what they were previously. Now the previous summer was hot, but they did a lot, and so we had a cooler summer. So she lucked out there. But they also did a bunch of other things. Now I'm not so sure the. You know the rates are sustainable over the long haul because I think we're racking up some debts on there. But but people will take the the lower bills uh, when they can get them. And so she so she has addressed that. And I think although she might have gotten some questions last night last night on hydro energy, I don't think that electricity is going to be the you know her big problem. I think the big problem is is the is the problem with that with the you know health the health chain from from hospital beds to nursing homes to home care. Uh, all, ambulances. That that is the. I think that is her real big problem right now. They always used to say, "Well, it's the economy," but but I'm not so sure that that is a resonate a, a thing that's going to resonate a whole lot with people at this stage either. Because I mean, the numbers indicate, Henry, that the economy in Ontario is actually doing pretty well, and the projections for 2018 are much better than uh, they have been for many many years right now. Does that actually resonate with voters, though? Because the numbers are the numbers, but at the same time, the, the counterbalance for that is uh, an apparent dislike for Kathleen Wynne herself, which I think was, was evidenced last night by some of the rhetoric that we heard. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also because people get fatigued with having the same party in for a long time, and so we're talking about 14 years now of liberal rule, so any mistakes made or, or perceived become look very big. But the, the, t- taking the economy, uh, uh, I mean, a lot of listeners might not agree with me, but the, the research in political science pretty much shows that uh, politics is really, really difficult for politicians when it comes to the economy. If the economy, through no fault of their own or through fault of their own, goes bad, they go down, they're sunk. But when the economy goes up, they don't necessarily get rewarded. Oftentimes people just say, oh, that's fine, and they go on their merry way and they look at something else. So you get punished if things are bad. You may get rewarded if things go up, but you can't really count on that happening, and that's happening in Kathleen Wynne now. I, people, people are not saying, oh, she's doing a great job on the economy. The economy is doing well, but she, people are not looking at that. And she, you know, and the government says, what do I got to do to get people to look at it? It's very, very difficult because people 
are worry worry about things that aren't. They're always looking for things that aren't going well, and uh, that that's always the problem. I spent a little bit of time in the political arena on the receiving end yeah. <laughs> as as a city councilor, and, and and I can tell you from my personal experience, and I'm sure that that the premier saw this last night. Very rarely does anybody put their hand up and say, hey, I just want to say I think you're doing a great job. Or <laughs> yes. Rarely do they say, hey, I really disagreed with what you uh, suggested two years ago, but it worked out. So, But I was wrong. You were right. You rarely hear that in public <laughs> yeah, office. I, sure. I think you want to hear it, but you rarely hear that. That's right. Invariably, the people that show up at town halls are the people that have something that they want to beef about. They do, and and when we look at the sort of the the cycles of parties in government, usually you know when your first five, eight, nine years, people still like you, and the reason they still like you is they think you're cleaning up the mess left by the last government. But when they no longer remember the last government, now they're looking at what things that they think are your messes, and and it can be very, very, very cruel and unfortunate. I mean, you look at the one, you know, I was talking about the health, I think, is a big deal, important to people. Out in Brampton, it's been a problem with the Osler Hospital out there, because they said not enough beds, people are in the corridors and all that. You look, about 20 years ago, health planners said, we're going to have a lot of population here, here's what it's going to look like, this is how many beds we, have, uh, we need, we have to build a new hospital, X number of beds. So what happened? This started actually under the conservatives. So they said, okay, we're going to build a brand new hospital out in Brampton. And, and they, they had the right number of beds. But what happened is as they negotiated and as they were building this thing with the private developers, developers kept coming back and were saying, oh, the costs are more. We can't do all these beds. So at the end of the day, we wound up with a hospital that had half the beds they were supposed to have at the beginning. The Auditor General has written about this, the previous Auditor General. And, and, and it, 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 so here it is where we knew exactly how many beds we needed. If we had those beds today in Brampton, nobody would be complaining about hospital beds in Brampton. But because of the trade-offs and the negotiations that went on in the building of this whole thing, they wound up with half the beds. And as the Auditor General said, they wound up, they paid for two hospitals and they got half the beds. Let me ask. But it's not her fault. She was. I mean, it's not even the liberals' fault because it started under the conservatives. Now there was no correction made by no the liberals when they came in to this whole process, and they were part of the process at the end of it. But here you are. She's she's being blamed on on things which you know that uh, that may have happened fifteen twenty years ago, and we're feeling the impact now. Part of the reason for that may well be that they simply say, look, if you're the one in the corner office, fix it. I don't care who started exactly. it, but yeah. fix it. And, and after 14 years, there's, exactly. I think, an expectation that uh, that some of these things need to get rectified. And But you're right. Some of these things are beyond the control of anybody, whoever's uh, going to be forming government uh, after the election coming next spring. Henry, there's something else that you mentioned a couple of months ago, and I, I'm starting to look at the numbers, as you always do. Uh, and I find it rather interesting. A year and a half ago, I, I don't think anybody would have given you a plug Nichols chance of Kathleen Wynne getting reelected. But I'm looking at, at the polls right now, uh, and it's the party polls, not the individual polls, liberals, conservatives, NDP. And they're neck and neck. Uh, and I don't think anybody saw that coming. What's going on here? Well, I, I always like to look about at the uh, actually at the, uh, do the an average of the last fa- five major polls that come out because one poll could be always a little bit off. Yeah. But you average out the five, you're probably going to be okay. It's like my doctor says: t- t- check your blood pressure, do, take it six t- days in a row, and then average it out, and that's your blood pressure. So it's not too different from public opinion polls, actually. But in any event. I think the problem with the conservatives is that I mean you'd expect that they should be doing very well. It's the leader. The leader has not bonded with the public. 
uh, you know, they say, well, the people don't know him well enough. Or they're trying to run ads and have run ads trying to have people uh, know who he is. But the thing is, people look at him, they, they listen to him, they watch him, and they say they develop no connection to him. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have the ability to connect with people. Now, if, and, if he, and I think that's just pulling down the conservative numbers and probably allowing the wind to come, or certainly the liberals to come back up. I mean, the liberals actually, the brand is running ahead of wind. I mean, if, if they had a new leader now, I mean, say a year ago she had resigned, and say someone like Yasser Nakfi or somebody like that had taken over, I bet the liberals would be way, way ahead of the pack. So, I mean, all things being equal, when I read the public opinion polls, they tell me that people would prefer a liberal party government. It's just that Kathleen Wynne, they just have gotten tired of her. And you might say it's unfair, they shouldn't have gotten tired of her so quickly, but, but people at times just get tired of a, of a leader and they want to change. And it may be irrational, it may be unfair, but that's that's you have to live with it in a democracy. But can that circumstance drag a party down with it? Yeah, well, I think it is. Like she's running way behind the party. I mean, if, as I said, if you had a, you if you had a new leader, I think the liberals would be way ahead right now. Uh, I I actually, and I don't know if I said this on your program, I might have said it on another CHML program, that uh, when I talked to some opposition members uh, a number of months ago, they told me they say their nightly pr- prayers. And their nightly prayers are, please, Lord, don't let uh, Kathleen Wynne resign. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because they know, everybody knows, it, it's, it's her, she is dragging, she's dragging the party down. It may be very unfair. She's work, she, you know, she works extremely hard. Those trade trips that she does, I mean, she does five in a year compared to Dalton McGinty's one. I mean, she's doing, she works extremely hard. But, you know, people, when people want to change, they want to change. And that's... Uh, you know, if you read the books by all the campaigners when they when they write their memoirs, they'll say when when the people want change, it's like a tidal wave and you can't stop it. But given the scenario, which is specifically that there's, we know there's going to be an election next June, they they couldn't make a change if they wanted to. There was a great deal of pressure on her back in the winter time, I guess, to step down, and yeah. she resisted that and she stayed with this. Right. You got to figure at this point, Henry, that she's going to ride the ship right through to the end. No, I would think so. I think it's kind. It is fairly late for her to step down, and I do not believe she'll step down. I mean, I think. I mean, I've had a couple conversations with her over the last year, and had a couple of meetings, brief ones, maybe not you know in-depth ones like we're having here about it. But I mean, I looked her in the eyes and looked her in the face, and I said, "This is a person that is totally believes that she can turn this around, and she is just, and she knows it's going to be tough, but she's bound to determine to do it, and she thinks she can do it, and no one, no one's going to turn her around. So she's, she's a, you know." She's in a leader. She's like, you know, in a small band of people fighting a big army. But she's out there in front. She's absolutely convinced she's going to win. And, you know, and off she goes. And, there's, yeah, she's not going to leave now. She, yeah, any, you know, you need at least a year, I think, for a new leader. And it's way too late. But how do you organize a campaign in a circumstance like this? I mean, clearly what the NDP and the progressive conservatives are going to do heading into the election, and, and let's not kid ourselves, the election's probably already started in their minds anyway, Sure, is they want to make this about Kathleen Wynne. The liberals want to make this about policy. Do people really pay attention to policy, or is it all about the individual? Well, some policies they will. I mean, I kind of think a lot of discussion during the campaign is going to be on, uh, on pharmacare. The liberals have a policy. The the NDP has a policy. Now the PCs have no policy on pharmacare. But I bet there's going to be a lot of talk about that because people are worried about dr- paying for drugs. 
uh, for, for their. Uh, so I think there'll be talk about that. But there, so policy is important. But I I actually think that once you hit the the actual campaign, those last four weeks, the 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 eyes of the people shift more to the leaders, and they say, you know, who do I really want to be have as their premier over the next four years? And so that that I think is that I think is very very important. And that's what I think is dragging. That's a real problem for the conservatives. They don't have a leader there that the public says, oh, I really want Patrick Brown to be the premier. You just don't see that in the polls. And we know Andrea is the most popular. Uh, will that, can she sustain it? But she's running for um, the head of a party that, in terms of brand, is, is third. It's not a weak third, but it is third. But we know, you know, once before in our history, uh, the third place party with an attractive leader, the NDP won, and that was 1990. So it, it happened once. Could it happen again? We'd have to wait and see. But it, but it can't happen. But I think you have to look at the. I think people are going to look at the three leaders and decide who they really want in those last four weeks. So and Kathleen is convinced she's going to be able to make a case. She's she's the best leader. She's got the best policies, and she has the best team. I mean, she she will have a lot of very good incumbents running with her. And so she'll have a great team. She has a great team working for her. Now, some of them have stepped down, but, I mean, she has, you know, she has a very good team, a good finance minister. You know, she's got, you know, like a people like Ted, Ted McMeekin running here in, in the west end of the city. I mean, he's he's an outstanding guy. There's no question about it. Even in the new riding up uh, up up north, you know, uh, in Flamborough, Glanbrook, you know, they've got uh, a very good counselor. Now, of course, there's enough conservatives have a very good counselor candidate running as well. So, but nonetheless, so they they will have good candidates, and so that's that will help the party. And I mean, traditionally, that whole time when the when the Tories were in, the Conservatives were in for 42 years, ending with Bill Davis, they, one of their great strengths is they always had very good local candidates, candidates who had made a good record for themselves on city councils and town councils. The tumult that you've just described here really makes you wonder. I'm glad you referenced the. The, the Bill Davis, John Robarts uh, time. I mean, 42 years of conservative rule right. in this province. I don't think we'll ever see that again. I think people get pretty tired of politicians rather quickly now, they, much more than they did in those days. Well, they yeah, I think that is true. I, I would agree with that, but maybe not as much. I mean, it, it is quite an accomplishment. I tell people this, I believe this. Dalton McGinty won three elections in a row. Now, the last election, he got a minority, but he only had a minority by one seat. That that's the best record of any liberal in the tw- oh, in over a hundred years. So uh, he he was able to you know get you know do fairly well there. So but you know under the conservatives, I mean a conservative uh, premier normally could count on being elected with a majority three times. Uh, yeah, that that those days are probably gone right now. Henry Jasek, always a pleasure. Henry, thanks so much for this today. Okay, I always enjoy talking politics with you, Bill. Always. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, of course, political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Interestingly enough, we were just talking with Henry Jasek about the uh, key issues here in the province, and he mentioned health care is probably the number one issue. Well, uh, related to that is uh, the concern right now in this community about transgender patients in our city here in the Hamilton area facing massive issues regarding uh, transgender health care. Many patients have been left on waiting lists for two years. Uh, some can't even find people uh, to treat them uh, for any number of medical situations. Joining us to talk about this is Cole Gately. Cole, of course, is the uh, chair of the Hamilton Trans Health Coalition, also with uh, MA in Adult Education and Community Development, and always a welcome guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Cole, how are you doing today? 
Good. Thank you, Bill. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for the time to talk to us about this today. This is a very important issue. Shed some light on us. What What are the problems that, uh, that the coalition is facing and that you've identified so far? Well, we've been around for about a year, and uh, we formed uh, because of, uh, you know, an increasing need, you know, trans activists in town and uh, the odd uh, handful of doctors, not even a handful, really, getting overwhelmed with um, calls and emails and uh, inquiries from um, other trans people who are uh, who were looking for a doctor. There's people looking for a, a doctor because they don't have a doctor or sometimes they're, um, they're scared that their doctor isn't going to understand or isn't going to be able to give them the help. And then um, others are afraid of discrimination, afraid of um, just not getting the kind of health care that they need. And ever since the coalition started and we, we've uh, become more visible, then uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting at least, you know, two emails a week from people looking for a family doctor in Hamilton. There are, I, I guess, a couple of ways to approach this. Let's first of all talk with people that uh, may actually even have a family physician, Cole, but uh, have identified themselves as transgender. Is is that does that present a problem sometimes? Sometimes it does, and I think it's just because um, you know family physicians. You know, we know that uh, in medical education, there's not there's hardly anything on trans uh, issues. It's usually because there's someone that's expressing an interest or someone who's trans themselves who is uh, in the course that are that anything gets talked about it. So there's no formal medical education for about trans health issues. So that's one thing. So I think that there are doctors out there, there are loads of well-meaning doctors out there who really want to help, but they don't know how to do it. And they're, they're sort of, I think they're put off by sort of mythologies around um, extraordinary mental health needs and things like this. Um, and then there are others who... I think there are some people out there who uh, still have, you know, sort of, you know, old-fashioned ideas and kind of biases against or against uh, trans people and don't want to deal with trans people. And then there's, uh, yeah, so if you have a doctor and um, it might just be that you haven't asked the question because you're too scared. And maybe if you did ask the question, it would, um, you know, the doctor would be willing. But I think we just, what the coalition wants to do is just, create education uh, in Hamilton for physicians and let physicians know that there's lots of resources out there uh, through Rainbow Health Ontario, et cetera, to educate them and to, you know, have um, uh, local doctors who are working on trans health care to do consults and, uh, you know, medical education with each other, peer education. It's, it's disappointing to know that there may well be some doctors out there who simply say, well, I don't want to do that for a variety of reasons, and it may well be because of some enshrined bias, and, and that's regrettable. Mm-hmm. But anecdotally, though, Cole, would it be fair to say that the majority of doctors might be willing to do this, but for a variety of reasons, as you mentioned, workload, maybe uh, lack of knowledge about the protocol that may be available to them right now, that they, they simply say, well, I, it's, I, I can't? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the, I think that, you know, doctors are, you know, they got into medicine for a reason. They want to help people. And uh, I think that the majority of doctors absolutely want to help. And it's just, I don't know about workload issues so much uh, because uh, we've heard from Dr. Karis Massarella and others that, you know, um, trans health care isn't extraordinarily different than other people's care, right? So it's not really a workload issue. There might be ideas that there there is going to be an extraordinary workload, but it's not true um, in the majority of cases. 
And so it's just a question of uh, getting educated. Sherburne Health Centre in uh, Toronto, which houses the Rainbow Health Ontario, they have uh, guidelines and protocols. It's a document. It's out there. It's downloadable from the internet for free, and it gives doctors, primary care physicians, exactly step-by-step instructions on how to um, how to support a trans patient. There's also a weekly um, teleconference for uh, physicians from all over Ontario who want to learn more about uh, supporting the trans patients. And I just think that there are many doctors out there who who already have trans patients or have patients who are considering transitioning already in their practices. So it's not like there's a ton of trans people out there who don't have doctors who are going to be, you know, bottlenecking the system. These are mostly people already have doctors. And if they don't, there are mechanisms in place to help uh, people get family doctors. Yeah. Talk to us about some of the concerns here that uh, the trans people, trans patients might be facing uh, vis-a-vis, for instance, hormone treatments, hormone therapy, things of that nature. I mean, without the direction and, and the oversight of a, of a family physician, are, are there problems that could ensue? Well, yeah, because it's a, uh, hormones are a controlled substance, so sure. they have to be prescribed. So they're not available over the counter. And, um, yeah, I mean, the problems are more um, psychological, I would say. I mean, I'm not a doctor myself, so I'm not going to be able to comment in too much detail. But basically... When you think about the idea that you, um, you know, trans people have, many trans people have known for their whole lives uh, or for known for a very long time that they're trans. And, uh, you know, due to whatever circumstances, people come out when they come out. And so, um, and so it might be a question of, I'll call the doctor tomorrow. I'll call the doctor tomorrow. And once you finally pluck up the courage to call a doctor and you are faced with, I can't start you on anything. I can't see you. There's a, a great big wait list um, for a year or two. Or you get a doctor who says, no, I'm not willing to do that. And then you've got to figure out what else to do. That delays you even more. And when you finally got to the point where you've actually gotten the courage to ask and then to be knocked back by a year or so, that is a very, very dangerous time for uh, trans people because um, especially youth, uh, I think that you know suicide rates are are higher among trans people, and it's really because of um, it's not because of being trans; it's because of living in a society that doesn't accept trans people very easily. And so, to just um, be knocked back like that, it can be it can be really awful, uh, an awful feeling that you're going to have to continue on in this uh, in this situation. So I think that. You know, um, you know, once people are on hormones, then, you know, things, you know, can improve and uh, people can start, you know, looking into ways to um, uh, just fully function in society as uh, trans people. But not being able to get access to medication and to hormones um, when you need it is um, it's it's dangerous. And nobody should in a, in Canada have to uh, face these kinds of barriers. Well, there's a, a psychological concern here, obviously, for, for those people in that mm-hmm. sur- situation, which is only going to be exacerbated if they find out uh, that uh, the stark realization that the health care provider that they had hoped to count on in a situation like that isn't going to be there in a supportive role. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, I think that you know, it's just a question of education with doctors, and I think that, you know, patients, doctors... Um, have, uh, you know, should be collaborating with their patients. And I think loads of doctors do. My doctor does. And, um, 
you know, trans, ask the trans patient. They are the expert in transness. They're the expert in their own lives. And so, and doctors aren't the expert of everything, just like nobody is the expert of everything. So doctors, um, you know, do have this sort of, you know, place in society where we, you know, we believe that they have lots and lots of knowledge, which they do, but they're not born knowing this stuff. And so learn from, ask your trans patients, what is it that you need? And um, how can I support you? And then the person is going to be so, to be asked that of by the doctor is, is just amazing to sort of hear like, wow, you're actually interested in what I have to say and what my expertise is around my own situation, which is what doctors do all the time when asking patients about what their lives are like. So, so I would just say, you know, let's get over the the, if there's a, a trouble with language or terminology or worrying about misgendering somebody, it's okay. We know that that's, those problems are out there and uh, we're not going to sit there and jump on you because you get the pronoun wrong, but we're going to have a conversation around um, how you can support me best. And I think that that's, that, you know, that should be, and then that's going to reduce all the mental health issues and it's going to, you know, because if there's a trans person experiencing mental health issues like depression or anxiety, that's a result of, um, in, in most cases, this is a result of lack of these social supports. It's not a result of being a transparent person. But I think part of the message that you're getting across here, though, Cole, is that those resources are available to physicians. And, and the overwhelming majority of physicians I know uh, treat this as, as an ongoing process. You're right. I mean, you don't get your medical degree and say, okay, I'm going to start practicing. I'm not going to open a book again. I'm not going to go online again. Absolutely. It's it's a constant learning process, of course, because medicine is evolving and, and, and the treatment yeah. of, of, of medicine is, is evolving all the time. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, rare diseases or, or some so many other different aspects to this right now. Doctors are always educating themselves. And, and part of the message that you're getting across here today, I think, with the work you're doing with the coalition is that, look, there are resources doctors can use online, uh, phones, etc., cetera, uh, that, that can be helpful to, to give them the information that they need. Absolutely. And also the Hamilton Trans Health Coalition, we are really, actually, we're growing all the time. We're about 50, over 50 members. Most of them are doctors, in fact. Um, and so we're working together to um, increase the capacity in Hamilton. We're, tr- we're working on uh, doctors, educating doctors, we're going to be um, putting on a, a big education event in the spring uh, for all doctors where we're going to have, like, a, it's going to be a conference, in fact, on trans health in Hamilton. So we're, we're, we're putting our, our stuff out there in order to educate doctors and invite doctors to join. I would love for doctors to get in touch with me and join the Hamilton Trans Health Coalition. It doesn't mean you have to come out to every single meeting, but just to be on the list and to start receiving our minutes and to start collaborating and problem solving together with trans people as well. Um, I think it's a very exciting way to uh, to practice and to move forward and to uh, do something really amazing. And Hamilton is, you know, we know that Hamilton's on the leading edge of this stuff because of the, the protocol at the city around um, supporting trans people who are accessing services and working at the city. So this is a perfect opportunity to, um, to you know, get educated and get on board with um, the future of, of gender. And trans people are at the leading edge of this. So I would say let's collaborate and work together to, to make it a great place to live for everybody. 
you've done so much good work on this, Cole, you and your committee with the coalition. And, and I think one of the aspects you just talked about being on the cutting edge is uh, is the advocacy for uh, the role of, I guess, almost like an ombudsman, somebody who could act as a liaison, a conduit for for, for the trans community to, to access uh, the health care and, and to maybe uh, tell them which doors to knock on, which phone calls to make to be able to access this sort of thing. That's a great idea. Yeah, well, there are already, uh, I would. I think you're talking about a system navigator, yeah. which is, we already have system navigators for uh, mental health, we have them for the you know, healthcare, uh, we have them for um, other areas. So it's, it's around, you know, working with a system that is large and complex. And um, sometimes people need assistance from somebody who, who knows, like a social worker or so, uh, someone like that, to sort of guide, help that person, you know, guide them through the system, through the, through the healthcare system. And I think that um, a logical step would be uh, it, of, of a variety of possibilities, I suppose, but one would be a, a great idea to um, create a position for called a trans health navigator, trans health system navigator. So as someone who is trans themselves, uh, who will be there to help other trans people navigate the system and find a doctor and um, access um, you know, the supports that they need around medical and healthcare. It's not that trans people have extraordinary needs, as I said before, um, but it's, it's around, or that it's a, an extremely complex thing to do to treat trans people or to work with trans people, but it's just that the system is complex and because of people's ideas about gender and because this is, you know, not a very well-covered uh, area in medical education, it means that trans people are missing the boat and are experiencing barriers that really shouldn't be there. And so to, to hire somebody, and we also know that trans people face barriers to employment as well. So hiring a trans person in a, a role like this would be, I think it would be amazing and it would help doctors to uh, feel much more comfortable about doing the work as well. Well, one of those barriers you've talked about is geography. I mean, you've got uh, trans uh, patients or potential patients, I suppose, here in the Hamilton community that are having to travel to Toronto, for instance, to, to try to find somebody who can look after them and give them advice and give them uh, the medical care that they, they so desperately need and deserve in situations like this. And, and we need to be clear about something. Uh, the end game here, you're not looking to, to create trans clinics. You're creating a system here where, where trans patients can actually access the system as it is now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, you know, if, if there was, a, you know, if, the, if funding came along and said, let's open a nurse-led clinic or something, we would never not say no, <laughs> you know. But I think that, you know, what is much more robust and which, which is going to, you know, last much longer and going to grow, be able to grow exponentially is to, for the entire system to be conversant with uh, supporting trans people because there are trans people all across the system. And as we've seen from uh, Quest and St. Catharines and also Toronto as well, uh, or in the gender diversity clinic at McMaster, I mean, as soon as you open a clinic and um, you start having patients, it can quickly, quickly fill up. And then there are going to be waits for people. And so what I think is to increase the capacity, this has been the, the mandate of, or not the mandate, but the mission of uh, Hamilton Trans Health Coalition since we started, is to increase the capacity of Hamilton's healthcare system to provide good quality healthcare to trans people. So that means educate everybody. McMaster Medical School, let's start you know, doing uh, formal 
uh, education on trans care. Um, already some of us are going in there and doing education and there's a, an increase in um, inviting trans people to come and talk about stuff. And, and that, that only makes well. sense, doesn't it? In other words, educate the next generation of, of physicians so, so yeah. that th- that stigma is, is slowly but surely going to erode. Yeah, and also, you know, amongst the next generation of physicians, there are going to be some trans people as well. There are already some medical residents who are um, not necessarily trans, but definitely, you know, on the spectrum. And, um, and you know, I think that it's just going to increase because trans people are feeling more empowered to come out. Um, and so medic- medicine needs to catch up. And I, I do think, you know, a great way of doing it is at medical school, and then obviously, of course, the continuing medical education as well, which all doctors need to do. It sounds as if, once again, Hamilton seems to be leading the charge on this. You mentioned the program that's ongoing at McMaster University right now. You've approached the Lynn. I know that Councillor Aidan Johnson has been very supportive of this and written a letter uh, in support of of, of creating this position right now. Funding, obviously, has to be the key. I mean, every time we have a discussion about health care, ultimately it comes down to dollars and cents. Do you feel as if if you've got the wind at your back here that people are going to be supportive of this? Yeah, I do. I I really think so. Uh, I, unfortunately, I couldn't make it last night to Trans Day of Remembrance because I was uh, working. But uh, but uh, I'm not sure how many people showed up. But I I know it would have been quite a lot. I heard from someone that there was uh, standing room only at some point. So I think that you know people are becoming more and more supportive. I'm getting asked to do education all the time. I'm an adult educator, so I do education on trans inclusion, especially in the social services. And I just read an email today saying like what a fantastic workshop that. Uh, I did with a trans woman, Autumn Getty, last week. And so I think that people are very, very supportive. I've had, I've had really 99% um, absolute, you know, thank you so much for telling us about this and just really warm um, receptions from people. So people just want to know. Everybody has the same worry about using the wrong language or offending somebody. And I, I think that's a very healthy but you know, not a big deal to have. But it's a, it's just a, to be worried about that, about offending somebody, is a great thing. And just um, learning language and under- giving yourself a break on not knowing everything at once. I do feel that people are very. Um, I'm feeling a lot of support for sure. And to let doctors know that uh, that there are resources available. You know, my family doctor, I've got a great family doctor. I mean, I always got the laptop open every time we're having a discussion about anything. You know, he's got every little bit of information he needs that he doesn't already have is just a click away. And, and that's the mindset I think we need here. Cole, good luck with this. Uh, we'll follow the story as it goes along and uh, hopefully some support from the Lynn and, uh, and ultimately uh, a better outcome for everybody involved in this community. Thanks so much for the great work you're doing and thanks for the time today. Thanks very much, Bill, and thanks for your support, too. Talk again soon. Cole Gately, of course, uh, who's doing so much great work right now toward this end uh, with his uh, Hamilton Trans Health Coalition. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Hamilton Board of Education is offering up a new resource as part of their Bullying Awareness Week program. It's a handbook available online that addresses parent, student, and teacher questions about the issues. Joining us to talk about this is Sharon Steffian, who is the Superintendent of Equity and Well-Being for the Hamilton Board of, Edu- Board of Education. Uh, Sharon, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. 
Hi, Bill. Thank you for the opportunity to call in this morning and to talk about this important issue. Yeah, it's always an important issue, and there's uh, there's always, always time to, to dialogue about bullying and the impact that it has on our kids. Talk to us a little bit about the booklet and the, uh, the genesis of this idea, Sharon. Well, as with other boards uh, in the province, we are entering into Bullying Awareness and Prevention Week around the province of Ontario. And the important work of creating those positive, inclusive, a caring environment for our students is certainly work that we do 12 months of the year, even when students aren't in the building. But this week provides us with an opportunity to really turn attention specifically to the area of bullying. And as you mentioned, we are very excited this week to be launching a new resource into our schools, developed both for parents and for students and also for staff, really highlighting information around bullying, clarifying what is bullying, what are the types of bullying, uh, what do families need to be aware of, what do students need to be aware of, and what can be done about bullying. Uh, Certainly the importance of looking at the role of bystanders, bystanders, and also information for students and parents if they are being bullied, if a student is being bullied, um, how to respond, and the importance of communicating with the school. The mistake any board would make, and you have not made that mistake, but but they could make here, is to simply say, well, we covered all that stuff a few years ago uh, when when we did a booklet back then. Been there, done that. This is an ongoing process, an ongoing educational process. There are always going to be new families into the system, uh, new Canadians into the system, and and education has got to be a key to bringing people to the table to be able to talk about this. Absolutely. And Bill, you've been very, you hit the nail on the head. The importance of communication is extremely important. And when we're talking about creating that safe environment, it's not a checklist. We can't say that we've addressed bullying this year and we're not going to think about it for another two or three years. There's always the need to go back and to do a refresh. We know that uh, technology has certainly provided for many games and many opportunities, but certainly it has introduced a new way for bullying that didn't exist 10 years ago. So it is important that we're constantly going back, we're constantly doing a refresh, but also working with our students and our families to say, how can we support you in ensuring that if bullying is happening, you're comfortable reaching out to us? Well, the other element to this, too, is is to get right to the core of the issue, I would think, Sharon, and identify exactly what we're talking about. Because so many times when somebody will come forward with some concerns about bullying or alleged bullying, as the case might be, the reaction from the other party, the the, the party that, that may be the perpetrator here, say, well, I didn't really mean anything by this. I didn't think it was bullying. So I think we need to have that conversation so we can actually define what, what we're talking about. Absolutely. It's that shared understanding of what bullying is and very important for the individual who is doing the bullying to understand the impact that their behavior is having on another individual and how can we move forward together in a positive way. I can't emphasize enough the importance of the conversations. If a parent believes that a child is being bullied, absolutely encourage them to contact the administration at their school. Um, Don't think maybe it's bullying, maybe it's not, maybe it's just the way in which children behave. The more conversations we have, the more awareness there is, um, the greater the opportunity to prevent bullying from happening within our schools, but also within the broader community. Well, certainly, because, I mean, if if you're being victimized by this, and and perception is the reality, let's face it. I mean, they, as I say, the perpetrator may not even think that they're bullying you, but, I mean, if you feel you're being bullied, you're, the, the impact is just the same. 
uh, and intent is is really almost inconsequential, whether the person's actually trying to be mean-spirited about it or whether they think they're just having a good laugh about it. The the impact on the, on the victim right now is, is still going to be monumental. Absolutely. And again, it's that importance of having the conversation and being aware of the impact of the behavior on the victim. One of the things that we're seeing in schools and certainly highlighted this week, but again, is a regular part of what we see in our school cultures, is students taking ownership around creating an awareness for their peers in schools around what bullying is. So, for example, this week you'll see uh, Pink Shirt Day happening in a number of our schools as a way of creating awareness. We have uh, various groups putting up displays to talk about the importance of mental health and the potential impact of bullying on mental health. We have schools where um, there are presentations happening around cyberbullying and what does that look like. Because the more conversation that happens, the more learning that happens, uh, the better we are able to create those safe environments in our schools. How do you do something like that? How do you attack something like cyberbullying? You talked about the tools that can be used, Sharon, and it's overwhelming, really, when you think about it. I, I, I can remember having a discussion uh, with uh, Perry Mason, who was on police services at the time and worked with the board for many, many years, of course, uh, in an anti-bullying capacity. I try to be a liaison for that, and, and that was 10 or 11 years ago. And, and we talked about, well, you know, make sure you understand what the kids are doing on the computer and, and, and put it in a place where you can have access to this so you can see what they're doing. The computers are in their hands now. I mean, it's everywhere right now. It's, there's, there's been such a proliferation right now of, of, of electronics that make it so easy now for this to do. It's got to be a monumental task to try to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the awareness of what your child is doing is extremely important. It's uh, conversations. It's parents having conversations with their children. It's parents watching to see if there are changes in patterns of behavior for their children. So if they have a child who has been excited about going to school and all of a sudden they're reluctant to go to school, they don't want to talk about what's happening in school, they're not talking about being with their friends when they're at school, that's the entry point for parents to have conversations. And those conversations um, certainly should lead to conversations with the school if the parents have any concern as well. But as you mentioned earlier, learning and education um, is foundational to changing bullying in our schools and communities. And so we have wonderful partners with Hamilton Police Services who will come into schools and will give presentations on cyberbullying. And we also have students who, through their own work, will take on initiatives and deliver presentations for their peers on cyberbullying. Absolutely, education is a fundamental foundational piece to, to changing the, the culture. How does the board prepare staff, and, and I guess specifically teachers, administrators like of, of that ilk, uh, to, to be able to identify and, and, and work with this? Because not Every time is is the the victim going to come forward and, and say, "Listen, I, I you know I'm I'm having a problem here." Oftentimes, children can't articulate those feelings, and and it's really up to the educators, the teachers, the administrators, the principals, vice principals, uh, to look for signs. Absolutely. So we do provide information for our staff. Certainly we have professional learning that is connected into being aware of what to watch for in the classroom level, what to look for at the school level, also what they might see on the playground. We do have an annual process where we ask our students in grades 4 through 12 to complete a a school climate and culture survey. And we do ask specific questions around bullying and where bullying happens in their school. If bullying happens, 
questions and each school is provided with that information so that they can reflect on what they're hearing from their students and then respond and respond accordingly to that information. I think the other piece that you highlighted that's extremely important has to do with the reporting because sometimes what we'll hear from students or we'll hear from families is that they're reluctant to report for fear that in some way, shape or form there may be retaliation. Mm-hmm. And we have in our board um, what's called the tip-off service and tip-off is spelled exactly as it sounds, T-I-P-O-S-S. It is an app that can be downloaded onto your phone where anonymously students and parents can report um, incidents of bullying. There's also a phone number that's a confidential phone number. If individuals are reluctant to come forward, they can call that number and they can leave their information anonymously and it's passed along directly to the school to respond to. Let's talk about that next step, though, because that's one of the main concerns I've heard many, many times from families whose uh, whose children they feel are being victimized, in, and it, not just now, but in the past as well, Sharon. And that's, well, how does the board handle this? How does the school handle this? And, and I know oftentimes the criticism we heard was, well, they didn't do anything about it. And I'm not so sure that was always the case. I mean, that might have been the perception because they might have been looking for you know, some sort of an action, suspension, I don't know, any number of different things at this stage. But what is the policy? How, how do you respond to these, to these allegations when something comes forward on this? How, how do you try to deal with it, both from uh, the standpoint of the person who's being bullied and the one who may be perpetrating the act? Absolutely. So we do have um, the Education Act absolutely guides the activities that school boards and schools take with respect to consequences related to bullying behavior. Absolutely, every incident that's reported with respect to bullying is report is investigated at the school level, and that involves conversations both with the student who uh, is being bullied as well as the student who is the alleged perpetrator. And then we have a progressive discipline model uh, in our school board where the consequences can range anything from counseling and detentions to possibly suspensions, um, and then in extreme cases, possibly expulsion certainly depending upon the infraction. But each situation is looked at individually. Uh, What we want to do is we want to ensure that we are supporting the student and the family who has reported the bullying. We also want to ensure that in addition to the consequences, there is an element of learning for the individual who has been doing the bullying. Uh, Extremely important that we we have an impact on that young person and their understanding around how their behavior is impacting another individual. And certainly we look at restorative processes um, as part of that as well. The involvement of the families is an extremely important component when we're dealing with resolving bullying. I want to talk about that. I'm glad you brought that up. I had that on my list of things to, to mention with you today about the restorative process. A very innovative idea. I know other boards, other other communities are using something like that, but it's been proven to be a very effective tool in dealing with this. Maybe explain a little bit about how that works. Absolutely. I mean, the restorative process really fundamentally has at the foundation of it um, putting yourself into the shoes of the victim and understanding the feeling and the impact that your behavior is having on the victim and how that is 
is is essentially changing the victim. It really is putting yourself into that person's shoes. And so what we have found is that is an extremely effective process because sometimes the young person thinks about the uh, what they're saying or what they're doing in that moment, but they're not thinking about the long-term implication, nor are they thinking about how it feels to be the person who is on the other end of potentially that text message um, that is, is bullying or the social isolation that may be happening. And so it really is about developing that element of empathy for how that other person is feeling. And that's one of the ways I think that, that makes it work as well as it does. Because oftentimes I've heard the reaction is, well, I had no idea. I, I didn't know that it was going to have that impact. I didn't, I didn't intend for that to happen. And we've all had examples, I think, Sharon, both children and certainly even adults, where we've sent a message, uh, an email, a text, something like that, and said, well, gee, I, I hope they understand exactly what my intent was. I hope they understand what, where my mind was on this. So, And what we've done now, because it's so impersonal when you send these messages, is we've created this other language, haven't we? The emojis and LOLs and everything to say, see, I was just kidding. Uh, as, I wasn't trying to be mean-spirited. Uh, and, and oftentimes we don't know how the other person is going to receive that message. And that, that restorative process can go a long way towards, I think, clarifying that. Absolutely. And that's what we see in our schools when the students are brought together and there's that opportunity for that face-to-face dialogue. Um, exactly what you've described, Bill, is we, uh, we see a young person who is, um, is surprised at the impact that their language or their text message has had on another individual um, and that there isn't that intent. All right. Let's uh, give some people some direction here if they want to get a copy of this. This is online, isn't it? It is. It is on our board website. So if listeners go to www.hwdsb.on.ca, um, they'll be able to access the parent resource directly, and they'll also be able to access information about how to download the tip-off app um, if there is a need to make a report directly to us. Well, to your credit, the Hamilton Board has been very proactive on this issue, and the booklet is just one more step in that process. Sharon, congratulations on this. Uh, continued good luck with uh, the work that you're doing on this, and thanks again for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate the opportunity. You have a wonderful day. You too. We'll talk again soon. Sharon Steffian, who is the Superintendent of Equity and Wellbeing for the Hamilton Board. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.